what I shared with you a few moments ago is what I would call the gospel through the lens of the resurrection. You can't present the gospel without the resurrection, but sometimes I think we present it in a way that misses the full-orbed picture of what Jesus Christ has done. You can boil down the gospel to simply this, Christ died for your sins, but he was raised. And because he was raised, we can be confident that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. He didn't have to stay dead. His death was enough to satisfy a holy God. Dear friend in this room, if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus, this is what we're asking you to do. This is what we want from you. We want you to trust your life, your everything over to the Lord Jesus. We don't want your money. We're not asking you to give us anything or to make us feel better. We want you to trust in the Lord Jesus. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. I am convinced, I am fully convicted, That none of the Bible makes any sense. And there is no point to any of it anyway, unless it is in fact the case that Jesus walked out of that tomb alive after having been dead and never to die again. It's all a sham and it's less than worthless unless Christ was raised from the dead by the power of God, vindicating everything he said, especially about him being the one who gives eternal life. So, if that is true, or I would say since that is true, we could say it another way. The gravity, the importance, the fangs, The real power of every text, every single passage of Scripture, that place where the rubber of the text hits the road of real life is, in fact, the empty tomb. So, in a way, the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the force of every text in the Bible to make it real and living in your life. You remove that, And these are all just pretty words, and it's a lot worse than that, actually. 
What I'm getting at then is this, that Christian preaching of the Bible on any Sunday only works if the resurrection is at least assumed, if not explicitly stated. You could begin every sermon this way. Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, here is what I have to say to you from his book. There are some texts where that connection makes a little bit more sense and where it's more clear, but this text that I just read, especially verses 11 through 12, are special in that sense. On Resurrection Sunday 2020, I decided that I would take a different approach to preaching. Most people, pastors, my brethren, preach from some text that explicitly mentions the resurrection In and around those details, we go to the gospel accounts, maybe 1 Corinthians 15. But I decided to go a different way, and we went through the seven letters to the seven churches in the Revelation to John. Because the big question is this, if in fact Jesus has been raised from the dead, then what is he up to right now? What is he doing? We know that he is seated in the heavenly, he's interceding for us, but the picture that Jesus gives of himself in the Revelation to John is that he is walking in and among the churches, judging, even threatening, seeking to purify his church. We must have an active living Savior. And so today we're going a little bit different direction than as usual on a Resurrection Sunday as well. That was an unconventional Sunday, Resurrection Sunday 2022, if you remember, There's nothing particularly unconventional about what's happening today, but I do think it is important for us to shake ourselves out of normal patterns. We're answering the question, what will Jesus do next? Yes, it is true that Jesus is risen from the dead, but he's not just going to stay in heaven. The day of the Lord will come. The return of Christ is a major theme in 1 Peter. In fact, it has been said that he has a single point eschatology, that as he looks into the future, it doesn't much matter to him how we get there. What matters, the big weight, the big heaviness that lies over everything is that an impartial God will judge the world. This is how one commentator put it. Salvation is the calling to future eternal glory based on the past resurrection of Christ and yet to be revealed at the final judgment. Peter goes on further in his description of what lies ahead than the fact, goes no further in his description of what lies ahead than the fact that an impartial God will someday judge humanity. One's response of faith to Christ's gospel is the key to deliverance from God's condemnation on that day. So, with the text today, understand how this works. This all relates together. Peter is making a shift from general theology and general exhortation to very specific exhortation and very applied theology. We talked about that last week. So in many ways, in these two verses, he is summarizing or reminding us about everything that he's already said. And he's laying the groundwork for everything that he's going to say next in his letter. For those of you following along in the notes, as you can see, I've tried to state these verses, these two verses, verses 11 and 12, in a propositional way. 
through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's the context of chapters 1 and half of chapter 2 up until this point, God has created a people and summoned them to holiness to proclaim His excellencies to all the nations for His glory in vindication and in conversion on the last day. Or you could summarize it and state it in a simpler way. Christian, remember who you are. Number two, live like it. Number three, so that God will be glorified on the last day. That's what these two verses convey. Remember who you are, Christian. Live like it so that God will be glorified on the last day. My burden today is to remind you or perhaps tell you that this living Savior we celebrate, this Jesus who was raised from the dead, is coming back. In answering the question, what will Jesus do next? The answer is as simple as it is wondrous and terrifying all at once. He will return to save those who are waiting for him and to judge with fury those who have rejected him. Make no mistake. You either really believe this or you don't. It either radically transforms your life or you live your life maybe hoping it's true, but hedging your bets with the pleasures of this world just in case it isn't. My point is to show you that you cannot separate the two. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, He will come back. It won't be any other way. It can't be any other way. So, through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's the context of chapters 1 and half of chapter 2 up to this point, especially chapters 1, verses 3 through 9, if you want to read that. This is how God has done it. This is how He's created a people. It's through the Christ event, through the incarnation, through His perfect life, through His death on our behalf, through His being buried, through His being raised from the dead, and His ascension, and His current session, God has created a people. Peter says it this way, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Like we said earlier, I think Peter is summoning... uh, Summoning us in this way. Christian, remember who you are. We would do so well to remember who we are, brothers and sisters. We forget. And oh, what grace we often forfeit because we forget just who it is we are. He calls us beloved. And I have exactly no notes under this word because if I gave myself any notes, I would just spend all the time talking about this wondrous word. Who is the lover in this word, beloved, in in Peter calling this group of people beloved? He's not saying, I love you. We can infer that. What he's saying, alluding back to chapters 1 and half of chapter 2, is that God loves you. You are beloved of God If you can just believe that, that the God who created the world, the God who has the right to snuff you out immediately and it would be no injustice on his part, that God loves you 
It would change everything. This is, in fact, why we need to be saved, because we will continue to reject that idea with our last breath unless he changes our hearts. The Holy Spirit brings the love of God down into our hearts, assuring us that we are, in fact, loved of God. Do you understand the gravity of this? That a God who had nothing other than wrath towards your sin, you had done nothing but rebel against him and throw off all of his demands and throw off all of his kind gestures towards you and his pleading towards you, he decided to love you. And in that love, he sent his only son to die for you. He didn't trick himself into a situation where he could love you. He sent Jesus to die so that he could love you forever. Why would you reject that? And how soul-stabilizing is it when you can just let yourself bask in the glory that God loves you. He has called you His beloved. He calls us sojourners as well. This This word carries the sense of alien or stranger or foreigner. The idea is that we're kind of waiting around for something else to happen. Someone who's a sojourner, their homeland is somewhere else. And they're in a different land waiting around for something better to happen so that they can go back or they're waiting for a situation to develop in the land where they are so that they can live. Waiting around somewhere else for something to happen, for something else to become available. Do you see how useful this word is in summarizing the Christian life? You're a sojourner. Parents. Are you raising your children to be prepared to live a life as a sojourner in this world? What kind of life are you modeling to them? There are some theologies and postures towards the world where it seems to me the hope and plan is to no longer be a sojourner but be in charge. But we are sojourners like Abraham Living all those many years in the land of promise, yet not receiving any of it yet. Not yet, brothers and sisters. One day, but not yet. New Zion is not finished yet. There are many more who belong to Jesus Christ's fold, who have not yet been brought in. This is not our home. He calls us also exiles. This ties into the themes of 1 Peter throughout calls us elect exiles in chapter 1. And the idea is that we've been cast out of the world. That's the concept of being an exile, that an entity in your homeland has decided that you're no longer welcome and has thrown you out. But remember that it's in fact God's activity, His choosing, His setting His love on us that has caused us to be on the outside now. We were once completely of this world. Paul even says it this way. At one point, you were darkness. Not just in the dark. Not just lost and bumbling about in a dark space. You were darkness, he says. That's the situation. We were part of this mass of condemnation. So we were part of the problem. And God, instead of doing the right and just thing at that time, paid the ultimate price so that it would become right and just to get us out of darkness so that we would be a distinct people for Him. That's what He has done. 
But now we are at odds with the world. There is great tension between us and the world because of what God has done by his own doing and his own choosing. And ultimately, the resurrection of Christ is what makes this possible and I would say inevitable. The binary in the Bible is not just light and darkness um, uh, of this world and of God. The most keen binary in the Bible describing the people of God in the world is in fact death and life. Here's the situation. Through Adam all die, as we already read this morning. All of the world was under the domain of death. Sure, there were people walking around alive physically, but death had the dominion. If you can imagine the inverse of a body riddled with cancer. The body is dead, and then through God's activity, little cells inside start coming back alive. And because of that, the body that is dead rejects us in the same way that your body would try to reject cancer cells. That's what God has done. He's caused us to come back alive. And we're no longer welcome. We do not belong in this dead body of humanity. So God has created a people. We're called beloved sojourners and exiles. And he has summoned them, his people, to holiness. Because we are God's people, Peter, on behalf of God, says this. He urges us to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So, in the shorter way I gave you to summarize these texts. Christian, remember who you are. Number two, live like it. That's what this statement is. I urge you. To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. If in fact God has caused you to come back alive through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then we ought to live like it. We ought to live as if we are really alive because that's what we are. Can I offer you though an encouragement before I give you the explanation of this text shortly? Um... This is no license to sin, but it is helpful to remember that Peter has to urge Christians to abstain from the passions of the flesh. This is a razor's edge to balance on, and I don't want to fall off one edge or the other, but do understand the summons, the imperative is don't give yourself over to the flesh. Don't sin. That's the point. But, you know what the biggest hurdle is? One of the biggest hurdles, at least, that you can face in your pursuit of holiness? The idea that Christians don't really struggle. Or that really mature Christians don't really struggle. What's wrong with you? These people that Peter is writing to, they've been willing to suffer the loss of almost everything. They've been, quite literally, exiled from their homes because of their affiliation with Jesus. And Peter needs to remind them and urge them to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And here's why I'm not shy or worried about telling you this. Because I know that if you really love God, and if you really treasure the Lord Jesus, then me telling you, Christians sin, and we need help will only do good 
and remind you that you need to confess and receive grace. And it will only help us as a church in preventing us from becoming legalistic, moralistic, and no better than the Pharisees. Pretty on the outside, but inwardly full of dead men's bones. Welcome to North Star Baptist Church. We are all terrible sinners, but we serve a wonderful Savior who delivers us and helps us make war on our sin. That's the truth. So, back to the strong exhortation here. Don't do it. Don't give yourself over to sin. Why? Because, using the language of war again, it wages war against your soul. It's trying to kill you. It means death, right? The objective of something waging war against something is to destroy. The objective of the passions of the flesh is to not make a treaty with your soul. It's not to have shared custody of your soul. It is to wage war, to destroy, to kill. And I want to connect this to the resurrection as much as I can. The new life that Jesus gives you isn't just that you come back to life and it's a blank slate. The life He gives you is real life that you're supposed to live in subjection to God, who is the source of life. You've been saved in order to live a particular way, a way that pleases Him. Jesus died and was raised to make this kind of new life possible in your life. Why would you give yourself over to the things that are trying to kill you? That would be like if you had terminal lung cancer. And the only thing that could save you was a lung transplant. And then miraculously, you find a donor. And they had to die in order to give you that lung. And the transplant goes perfectly. You're given great hope for many more years of life. And then to decide to smoke three packs of cigarettes a day. Or if you got a massive speeding ticket, let's say you're going 110 through a school zone, and the judge lets you off with a warning and defensive driving, and then you decide you're going to go drag racing through a construction zone, or asking forgiveness from your spouse for sinning against them to go back to the very same attitudes and sin patterns that caused the problem in the first place the very next moment. That's what this would be like. The very thing that Jesus had to die in order to bring back to life, namely your soul, is the very thing that the passions of the flesh are trying to kill. You get it? He paid his life so that you could be alive. Why are you letting things kill you again? That's the summons to holiness. And when we give ourselves over into those temptations, into the passions of the flesh, we're essentially saying, yeah, that's cool. I'm okay with that. I'm okay giving myself over to death even though Jesus paid his life to make me alive. There is so much going on here. Waging war against your soul. How could your soul be at peace if you continue allowing in intruders who are trying to make war against your soul? In fact, this is the root cause of so many of our afflictions that we have in our life that we have undealt with sin in our lives. 
I'm not saying that sin is at the root of every affliction we experience, but oh, what grace we often forfeit by going to other solutions instead of dealing with our hearts before God first. No, repentance from sin and living the life that Jesus gave you won't gave you will not solve all your problems with anxiety and depression and frustration, but it might solve a huge list of it, a huge portion of it, as you hand yourself over to the Lord and stop letting things try to kill your soul. Understand this, everyone, and maybe this has never been made clear to you in your whole life as a Christian or as people have tried to share the gospel with you. Christianity or holiness in Christianity does not carry the flavor of don't do this and do this, just do's and don'ts. And you better because I said so. Rather, it carries the flavor of this. Don't go that way. Don't give yourself to that because it will kill you. Come this way. Give yourself to the Lord. You will have life. That's what holiness is about in Christianity. God has created a people and summoned them to holiness to proclaim His excellencies to the nations. I'm getting that language from the earlier passages, verses 9 and 10. But Peter says it this way. He makes the point even more clear in these verses. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why does he need to say this in addition to what he's already said? He's already told us to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against our souls. Why is he saying, in addition to that, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable? I think there are two problems he's addressing. One is the problem of bare minimum holiness. That's a real problem in our day and age. Just as long as there's nothing explicitly against it in the Bible, we'll just do whatever we want to do, and it's fine. Then there's also the problem of brazen holiness. Where we want to slap people in the face with how holy and upright we are. In this context, Gentiles means nations. And theologically, it means all believers anywhere and everywhere. Your conduct among the Gentiles. It's it's ethnos, the peoples. All the peoples out there. Keep your conduct among them honorable. When I talk about our faith, I use the words flavor or posture or attitude a lot. Because, brothers and sisters, there are just a lot of bad flavors and postures and attitudes out there. That we as Christians have towards each other and towards the world. But this word honorable tells us explicitly what type of flavor your life is to have before the world and before any unbeliever. This word carries the sense of excellence, commendable, fitting, suitable, even beautiful. That's what it means. And it's up to you. It's up to you to show it to them. Does your manner of life then, this is the question, does your manner of life adorn and commend the gospel to non-believers? It must, and that's the point here. In short, be holy, but don't be a jerk about it. Let your light shine before men, but don't be obnoxious making yourself the point. 
And this makes sense in an honor-based society like they had in the first century. It's a little bit more difficult for us to relate to. But we still have a sense of being respectable, being upstanding, being pure, having a good reputation, commending the gospel with the way we live our lives. Humble piety, if you want to give a phrase to it, humble piety is what we're after. And it's a very difficult note to hit. Difficult to define, but it is actually a mark of maturity. In fact, in the qualifications for an elder's, For an elder, Paul says that they must be thought well of by outsiders. That means non-believers. The non-believers would look at this person, a mature Christian, and say, yeah, I respect that guy. I commend his way of life. We just really need to remember, family, that it was not the sinners and prostitutes that were offended by Jesus. It was the religiously proud. And I think we have become a collective making friendships and partnerships with the religiously proud because they may share our values or our politics. And we have no interest anymore, it seems, for the most part, to be a friend of sinners. Understand that a stage is being set. Do you understand? that this is, this is God's point in summoning us to holiness in this way. He's setting up a stage. And you're playing a part on that stage. And the point is to commend to the audience, the world, that this way is legit. This God is worth your reverence and your life. Come to Him. Even if they don't believe our message. This is how... Luke says it in Acts chapter 5, verse 13. Now, the rest not dare join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Even if they don't believe our message, they should be able to hold us in high esteem because of the type of life we live before them. Paul says, there is no law against love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The point is this. No one in their right minds really has a problem with love or joy or peace or just general kindness. There will be some, as we'll see in a minute, servants of the enemy who hate all goodness. But I think a lot of the ways we suffer before the Lord is in view of the world, from the world, is that we're self-righteous. And we're proud. And that's our fault. I want to also connect this idea of honorable conduct to the resurrection as well. As we just sang in the resurrection hymn, or it's also called See What a Morning. In this event, the resurrection of Christ, the cornerstone and power of our message is the dawning of hope. Hope, brothers and sisters. His voice, that voice that spans the years, speaks life and stirs hope and brings peace. Since our first parents rebelled, hope has been a faint dream, a riddle in the dark, a often feeble sense that God would do something to fix this. But when Christ was raised from the dead, hope broke through all of that darkness like the sun in its full strength breaking over the horizon. 
that you may have life in His name. Is that the flavor of your posture towards the world? We bring life and joy and peace and we stir it up in you because we have found the one who can give it to you. Death and judgment sometimes seems to be our preferred flavor towards the world. Do you come to bring life through your honorable conduct? As Jesus said, as Jesus did, is is your flavor joy to the world? The Lord has come. Is it come, taste and see that the Lord is good? God will judge. And it will be terrible. And no one will be to blame but those who are judged. But sometimes I feel that if many of us were in the place of Abraham, we would have been happy. But God finally decided to put a stop to it instead of negotiating with Yahweh for mercy. Christ was raised from the dead to give life. Will you be willing to take the message of life and forgiveness and hope to a world by living an honorable and kind and merciful life filled with joy to the world? God has created a people and summoned them to holiness to proclaim His excellencies to the nations for His glory in conversion and in vindication on the last day. So that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They will speak of you as evildoers. It's not if... But when? Do not be surprised, Peter says later. You can take it to the bank. This is what he says. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I think we leave that last part out sometimes. Our living in hope, this flavor of a hopeful life for the glorious return of Jesus will elicit questions and opposition from the world. And that opposition will be intense and it will vary from time to time. But behind all of that opposition to our life filled with hope is in fact the enemy. In the letter to the church in Smyrna, Jesus writes this, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The devil? It was the Roman soldiers and the magistrates and the Gentiles who were to throw them into prison, the devil? You see, brothers and sisters, nothing bothers the enemy more than our faithful and persistent hope in the return of Christ and our joyful proclamation of that to the world. And God in His providence allows the enemy to oppose us and even to throw us in prison, even unto death, so that it would be clear through our endurance of that persecution and mistreatment and unjust treatment that our hope is in Him. 
and not in this world. Why should we endure this mistreatment in hopeful, fearless, respectful, kind, and in a happy way? Because Jesus is coming back. The Lamb that was slain is worthy of all power and glory and might. And this world is the last holdout of opposition to Him. The last battle will be fought and we will win. But we, as those who are humbly waiting for Him, are God's open invitation to the world to be reconciled to Him before that day. That's why we're here. Over the last few years especially, I think believers in the world over have squandered so many opportunities to do this very thing. To show the world that our hope is not in this world, but in the return of Christ. We complain so much. And it's as if we don't really have confidence in His return. And we don't really trust that our humble and quiet piety in the face of opposition is God's way of bringing more into His fold. What is Jesus going to do next? Peter calls it here the day of visitation. He calls it many different things. He calls it the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, it's called the day of of the Lord. It's called the day of Jesus Christ. There is a day, a fixed point in the future. Even though we're to hasten the day, it is appointed when Jesus will come back. The return of Christ will end all stories. Every theme will be resolved. Every idea will find its fulfillment and every question will find its answer. In the great and awesome day of the Lord. And all that is hidden will be brought to light. Here's the point for you believers. It does not matter so much what you believe took place on that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. If you don't believe he's also coming back. Or more keenly for us. If it makes little to no difference in your life. How much would really change about your life if you could be persuaded that Jesus isn't returning? Would anything change? So, connecting this all together, one of the most significant implications of the resurrection of Jesus is, in fact, that He is coming back. He was raised from the dead By the power of God, therefore, we can trust 100% everything he ever said. God raising him from the dead, never to die again, is God's stamp of approval on every single word he ever uttered. And one of the things that Jesus said at many times and in many ways is that he is coming back. Here's what he says in John 14, 3. And if I go... And prepare a place for you. I will come again. I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am you may be also. We can be more sure then of his return. Than the rising of the sun tomorrow. 
And I say in the notes, if you're following along, for God has created a people and summoned them to holiness to proclaim His excellencies to all the nations in conversion and in vindication on the last day. What does that mean? This phrase, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It could be literally rendered this way. That they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. I think there's some intentional ambiguity here. Yes, the Bible can be intentionally ambiguous, and and scholars debate over what he means. Is it talking about the return of Christ? Day of visitation is kind of a unique phrase to speak of it. Or is he talking about the day when God directly visits these non-believers and converts them? And I think the answer is yes. Because what will happen in the case of some is that our manner of life before them will so undermine their oppositions to this message, their oppositions to this God, that they will have nothing else to say. Indeed, there must be a God among you. That's the effect your life is supposed to have on the non-believing world. I don't want you to have that experience. Those are your only two options. That they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You get to pick when that day is. That's the amazing thing about this text. Either you will yield and repent and glorify God now, or he will vindicate his people on the last day and you will glorify God then. Either way, God gets the glory. This is how Mary praises the Lord in Luke chapter 1, verses 50 through 53. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And here's the point. This is the offer of repentance. God's terms of peace to you right now is this. Will you be one of the proud that he will scatter in your own thoughts? Or will you be one of the ones to humble yourself to receive all good things from him? Which will be true of you? Resist his offer to you in pride and a haughty spirit. That's one way. Or will you yield? Yield to him. To fear him and to receive his forgiveness. The amazing thing is that because we are a created being and God is sovereign over us, he will get glory from our life. And what's even more stunning than that is that he has made it possible for us sinners for praising him to be the very best thing for us. The glory of God is a terrible thing for a sinner. 
Because the right thing for God to do towards a sinner is to judge and to punish. But at the cost of his son's life, God, of his own will, made it possible that you glorifying him, me glorifying him, rebels as we are or were, it becomes the best thing for us. It is the invitation into fullness of joy. It costs Jesus his life to make it possible. Reject all of this and God still gets glory from your life. But I really want you to see his offer of peace to you today. Christ was raised from the dead that you may have life forever in him. So to close with a few applications. Are you living a life that is a functional denial of the return of Christ? Does it make really any difference? How would you construct your life? Would it be any different if someone could prove to you that Jesus was still dead? But because he is raised, how ought we to live? How does your life show that you really believe it? This is, in fact, the reason for our hope that people are supposed to be seeing and asking us about. Are you portraying hope? Are you living an honorable life so that they would even ask? Number two, what have you allowed to wage war against your soul? This is a deeply personal question. And we all have things in our lives that we have just opened the door to and allowed to Wage their campaign of war to put your soul to death. And by the Spirit, you have been given the power to slam that door closed and to repel that attack today. Confess, repent, and receive His forgiveness. And that's a summons I'm giving to you believers. What needs to change about us as a church? Jesus is alive and he's coming back. We can't be a church that just gets the first part of that sentence right. We have to be a church in the way that we live and the way we minister that really is under the reality of Christ's return. He's alive and he's coming back. Time is short, but there is still yet time, brothers and sisters, to work together as zealously as we possibly can to work alongside God to bring many sons to glory. And lastly, as a final application, believe in the Lord Jesus. You might say, well, I already believe in Him. Then believe in Him more. This is why I often try to avoid the word believe, because in our minds, in our culture, believe is a binary. You either believe or you don't. But trust, which is an accurate translation of the word in the Bible as well, trust is a sliding scale. You can begin to trust something more and more. This is why one of my favorite hymns, Oh, for grace to trust him more. If you believe in Jesus today, trust in him more today. You may say, on the other hand, well, I don't trust him and I'm not sure I want to. Then still trust in him. No one else can help you with your death problem and it's not even close. No one else can help you with your sin problem and it's not even close. 
No one else can help you with the problem of the day of visitation. The last day. And it's not even close because he is the judge. And he has offered you this day at the cost of his own life, the price for peace. Jesus says to you, even you, dear friend, this day, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. My burden today has been to remind you that this living Savior we celebrate, this one who walked out of the tomb, alive by the power of God after he had been dead, this one who conquered the enemies of Satan, sin, and death, By his all-sufficient merit. This one who proved that he was the true son of David. The son of man and the son of God. By his power over death. This one who proved that he is the priest forever. By virtue of his indestructible life. This one whom death could not hold. This Jesus of Nazareth. Will not just remain on the pages of your Bible. He will not always be misrepresented by art. He will not always be misportrayed by false teachers and false Christians. He will not always use imperfect men, imperfect people like me and my fellow brethren, telling you to believe in and trust in Him. He will not always be in the place He went after being raised from the dead. Namely, preparing a place. In New Zion for his people. And he will not always need. He will not always need all of this to testify to him. He will not always. We will not always need to rely on faith to see him in the power of his resurrection. One day he will return. And he will stand on the earth. And every eye will see him. And he will judge the living and the dead. And whoever trusts in him shall not be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, cause us to yield to the power of the resurrection of the Son of God. Give us keen minds to understand How his resurrection and promised return changes everything. Produce faith even today in our hearts. For some, for the first time, and for us, we need more. Do so for the glory of your Son. To your praise. It's in his name we pray. Amen.